0: This morning, I want to begin talking through John chapter 3. And we had ordered these videos, Steve and I, a long time ago. It was called 40 Days with Jesus, and it happened that one of these videos was Nicodemus. And this video, I think, so aptly sets up what we're going to look at this morning. If you are into titles and everything, you've noticed that in your bulletin, if you have an insert, you can follow along. Obviously, this series of John, and I have no idea how long it's going to take me to get through. I've titled it Conversations with Christ because John's gospel is different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John describes more of the personal interactions of Jesus with other human beings than anybody else. And today, we've arrived at the interaction of Jesus with Nicodemus. And so what I've titled the sermon is really... Nicodemus because he's the main character of the narrative. Well, you can always make the argument that Jesus is. But the one that we are to identify with is Nicodemus. And I would say he was religious (laughs) and confused. And it's ironic that I would title that when you really dig into who he is. By way of allowing me some time and grace to set up this passage before I read the words A couple of weeks ago, we've just come through probably at least the second biggest holiday of the world in Western culture, Easter. Only Christmas rivals it in money spent and in days led up to and so on and so forth. I would submit that Easter, the resurrection, is the pinnacle of Christianity. But two weeks ago, we celebrated what was called Palm Sunday. Now, how many of you have heard of Palm Sunday? Put your hand up. Don't be afraid. I won't make you speak. So almost everybody in here put their hand up. You've heard of Palm Sunday. Now, if I were to say to you, tell me about it and tell me about your upbringing, some of you will tell me stories of being kids in Sunday school and getting palm branches. Some of you will tell me about going to church and maybe even you were part of a group where kids ran forward in church and sang and waved the palm branches. And maybe you've seen reenactments of it or all kinds of things. But have you ever asked yourself, How or why it became Palm Sunday. I mean, it's all there. You can almost any calendar you'll buy at Staples or all these places, Walmart will actually have Palm Sunday written in the calendar. I mean, it's right there. But why do we celebrate it? Why do we have it marked on the calendars? Let me ask you this. Are we required to celebrate it? Like, Does it make you more Christian if you celebrate Palm Sunday? What happens if you don't celebrate it? Are you not Christian now? Is a church rated on a scale of Palm Sunday observance? Are you more spiritual if you do it? Are you less spiritual if you don't? If you don't celebrate Palm Sunday, are you missing out on something? Is some sort of wild, really cool spiritualisms imparted into you if you've waved a palm branch, or you have one stuck in your Bible that's freeze-dried. Should we fight over it? Should we draw lines? Should we advertise on our website, Calvary Baptist Church, we're a Palm Sunday observing church? And so then we can say, well, if they're not, we're five stars, they're only four. Should we fight over it? Should I scour the city to find out which churches observe it and which don't and say, I challenge your reverend priest or minister or pastor to a debate. Should we be willing to die for it? Give me death or give me Palm Sunday? I love all your nervous laughter because you're all like, I have no idea what I'm supposed to say or do right now. Okay, so stop and think about that because that's just like one holiday on the calendar. In our video, Nicodemus said that he ruthlessly pursued to keep the 613 laws of Judaism. Trust me, they were ruthless in their pursuit of this. Not only did they have their 613 laws, but then they had rules that explained each one. So let me give you an example. Thou shalt keep the Sabbath holy. Well, that's the rule. But by the time you get to Nicodemus' time, there were 50 rules on how to keep that rule. So there was 50 things that they had to observe to know that they had kept the Sabbath. In fact, the Essenes who gave us the the Dead Sea Scrolls that maybe some of you have heard about, they were so vigilant in keeping the Sabbath that they believed it was actually contradicting the Sabbath to even go to the bathroom. And they write in the scrolls, I've seen the writings of this, that they made fun of themselves because they said they knew who was a new convert. By the way, his legs were crossed as he jumped around for the 24 hours trying to make it without peeing. But they literally trained themselves not to go to the bathroom for 24 hours. All to keep the Sabbath. And that supposedly kept them holy. So you can imagine what it was like. How easy is it for us to get confused about things you've just done at church and thought it was sociably acceptable to do so? Without fully knowing or understanding why you do them especially if you have a way of doing church, if you have things you are used to church being, how you call the leader, what you do in the music, how you do your liturgy, what's supposed to happen from start to middle to end. If this is the thing you do and you've got a Bible and you read it a certain way and you've counted on certain things and you live a certain way and you talk a certain way and you do things, and then all of a sudden someone comes along and says, yeah, all of that, it's all wrong. How does that work? mess with your mind. Imagine what it was like for Nicodemus. Now, let me step a little bit closer to maybe us here. What does it even mean to be born again? Or let me use the word saved or a good Newfoundland word because of the prominence of Pentecostalism and Salvation Army, converted, right? You've been converted, most people don't even know what the word saved or born again means. But born again is actually that real biblical term. But what does it mean? How would you answer the question? And would your answer make sense? So if somebody said to you, have you been converted? Have you been saved? Have you been born again? And you go, yes. Does someone hearing that response go, well, that makes sense based on how you live? Or do they go, well, I kind of know you. So what makes you think you're born again and I'm not? I ask this because let me tell you some people that are alive today who claim to be born again. This is an interesting list. For those of you that know movies, Gary Busey, Bercy, For those of you that know him, he's got the big teeth. He was the villain in Lethal Weapon, stuff like that. He claims to be a Christian, although the last 10 years of his life have been nothing but him bouncing from reality show to reality show because he's hopelessly addicted to drugs. Bob Dylan claims to have been born again. Tom Hanks. Jane Fonda says that she is born again. Uh, Here's a good one. Charlie Sheen. Charlie Sheen says he's a born-again Christian. I'm looking at your faces. Boy, you're telling me an awful lot right now. Uh, Oh, yes, yeah, Britney Spears. Britney Spears says she's born again. I don't know if you know this name, but Sheila E. She's the prince's protege. He passed away this past year. She became a born-again Christian, according to her testimony, when she was 18. She was stressing about various things in life when a friend told her, you just give your heart to Jesus and everything will just be fine. So she said, I gave it a shot. One of my favorites is an actor by the name of John Corbett. Some of you know that name. He acted in my big, fat Greek wedding, that movie, with the girl with the really big nose. I don't know why I said that, but anyway. Um... Here's an interesting thing. He said he became a Christian after reading the Bible in 1986. He says, I was raised Roman Catholic, but he said, after I read the Bible, I discovered me and God were good. We're on good terms. I travel a lot. There's this little Catholic church that I go to once in a while, but I haven't found a church that I like to go to. Church bums me out. So I just, when I have time, kind of read my Bible, and every now and then I send up a prayer. But he's a born-again Christian, according to him. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but in Christianity world, there's a, a person by the name of George Barna, and he runs a research group, and he does all kinds of studies of Christianity in Canada, the United States. He does all these surveys, and here is how George Barna defines born again. So when his company does research, and he phones you up and says, how do you class yourself? This is how they class born again someone who has made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ that is still somewhat important in their life today. And believe that when they die, they're going to go to heaven because they at least said a prayer and has accepted Jesus Christ as Savior. Now, on some level, that may sound like, Steve Jones, man, you're stressed out here early this morning. Like, dude, that's not bad. All right, well, let me go a step further because... Barna has this group called Born Again, but then they have this other group called Evangelical Christian. So you're either in the Born Again camp, or you're in the Evangelical Christian camp. So here's the difference. If you're in the Evangelical camp, you you meet the Born Again criteria, plus seven other conditions. These conditions include saying their faith is very important in their life today, Believing they have a personal responsibility to share their religious beliefs about Christ with non-Christians. Believing that Satan exists. That's an extra. The born-again camp doesn't have to believe that. Believing that Christ lived a sinless life on earth. Asserting that the Bible is accurate in all that it teaches. Believing that eternal salvation is possible only through grace, not works. You don't have to believe that in the born-again camp. And describing God as the all-knowing, all-powerful, perfect deity who created the universe and still rules it today. You don't have to believe any of those seven things, but you still qualify as born again. Do you see my angst with this a little bit? Now you understand why Charlie Sheen can say, Sure, sign me up. I'm born again. I read a Bible once. I don't know, boy, maybe when I was high, I, I was crash-trash in a hotel, I prayed a prayer Something. I called out to God. Now, you're all laughing, but this is how watered down these expressions come. This is how mainstream we've made, quote-unquote, Christianity. And now you understand why I think it's going to take me a while to get through this. Because I don't want to toss out a term that you don't understand how profound it is. We are going to start our journey into one of the most famous and well-known interactions in all of the Bible. I watched some of the hockey games yesterday and some of the baseball games. I still have hope for the Blue Jays. I don't, I don't know what that makes me, but I still hope for them. But it almost never fails that I will watch a hockey game or a baseball game or a football game and somebody holds up a thing that says 3 colon 16 on it. Do you know what it means? Ah, exactly. You'll see that reference somewhere, everywhere. Because that's the, that's the verse. That's my verse. That ranks right up there with the WWJD bracelets. Right? Everybody and his dog. In fact, I've seen dogs with those things around their paws. And sometimes I think the dog has a better understanding of what Jesus would do than the humans that have the bracelet. I'm going to read at least that verse, John 3.16. And Almost everybody in this room, you've either heard the verse or you've seen the verse or many of you in here have memorized the verse. But before I read this passage, I want to make sure that we understand the context and the setup of it. Again, you need to grasp that this interaction between Nicodemus, you got to see it as the fallout of what we've been looking at the few weeks. That's why he referenced it. Remember, this came about because Jesus has gone to the temple and he cleansed it and he blew everybody away. I mean, what he did was unheard of. It had never been done before this Jewish carpenter from Nazareth down in Galilee shows up at the temple on the cusp of its most holy day and he basically takes over. And nobody does anything. He's got whip in hand, chasing out animals, turning over money tables. His authority and his zeal is both admired by the common folk and questioned by the religious establishment. But then he goes in verses 23 to 25, we know he did other signs. And I don't want you to ever underplay the profound impact of Jesus on his immediate culture. What would it be like if truly today there was someone in St. John's and the word got out on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, if you get down to Mile One Stadium, there's a dude out in the parking lot, and if you're blind, he makes you see. If you can't walk and he touches you, you can If you can't talk, if you have someone that's possessed or or has social interaction problems, if he touches you or prays over you, you're instantly healed. Don't tell me there wouldn't be a crowd. Don't tell me we wouldn't know about it. Don't tell me it wouldn't impact the culture. Jesus had a profound impact on his culture. And as a result of these many unnamed signs, because not only do we have the turning the water and the wine and the cleansing of the temple, but according to 23, 24, and 25, he did all kinds of other signs, and the word was spreading. People are talking. Folks are looking at Jesus from all kinds of angles. Yet here's Jesus not doing what most of the people want him to do, overthrow Rome and free Israel. Now listen, you need to listen to me, because I want you to have this mindset as I even read this passage. If you're curious about Jesus here this morning, you're curious, or you're fascinated by him, or you think, you know what, Jesus may be a good uh, option for me because I really think he's got my agenda at heart, and thus he's a worthy guy to follow. I'm going to say quite up front, you will be sorely disappointed. I'm going to do this, Steve is a bit shy about this, but I talk to Steve a lot, Steve Daw about my sermons, and today I'm going to quote him. You know, I quote commentators and pastors. Today I'm going to quote eminent professor of theology, Steve Daw. As I was discussing this passage with Steve, Steve said to me, you know, he says, no matter what position you hold, Jesus will correct it. Steve's made it now because he's on the screen. (laughs) But he's dead right. As soon as he said it, I said, Steve, I'm going to quote you. That's a great quote. No matter how, what position you hold, Jesus will correct you. Because I guarantee you, unless your, position, your assumption or your position of Jesus is taken only from the word of God, you will have the wrong position on him. That's just a fact. In fact, let me go a step further. This first step in the rehabilitation of any man lies in his admission of guilt. If you want to know what's the first step I have, need to take to be right with God, you've got to admit you are guilty of something. To benefit from a doctor, the patient must admit that he or she is sick. I have never gone to a doctor, made an appointment, sat in the waiting room, gone in, and when Dr. Watson comes in and says, now, I'm just here to see you, I'm perfectly well, I just thought I'd come talk to you. She would look at me and say, I think you have other issues. Whenever I go to see a doctor, I go because I'm sick. I know I'm sick, and I know I need to go talk to her. And this is what I want you to understand. You and I know this to be true. You know that's true in medicine. You know that's true in business. You know that's true in criminal rehabilitation. And it is also more true spiritually. And that's why so much of the Word of God is given over to revealing mankind's need so that a person might acknowledge his or her need and turn to God for pardon. That is the overarching story of the Bible. In fact, a careful reading from Genesis to Revelation will show you over and over again these things. God is holy, we are not. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, no matter our circumstances left to ourselves, we will always mess things up. I'm sorry to tell you, when it comes to just raw humanity, there's no place to go in the Bible where you just get a feel-good story. All you get is the reality that we will invent ways to screw things up. And God is yet holy. And in John chapter 3, this very well-known chapter, you might even say it's famous. If you read it, you'll see what it means to be saved and how one is to get saved. But before you get to that, John tells us about this amazing conversation between this very religious confused man and Jesus. And I have to tell you, the interaction captivates me. This is ranks right up there as one of my all-time favorite chapters of the Bible. And I've often wondered if a guy named Ravi Zacharias has used, took in his cue to this passage in John to write that series of books that if you read your email blast, we advertise those books for you. Ravi Zacharias has written a f- series of four books. One is called Jesus Talks to Buddha. It's an incredible book. I have these four books. Another one, Jesus Talks with Krishna. And then another one is Jesus Talks with Oscar Wilde. And it's all about physical pleasure. And then finally, Jesus Talks to Hitler. And and he writes this as if this is a conversation, very much into that Nicodemus-esque thing. And so if you see those books, I'm telling you, they are fantastic books to read, fantastic books to give away. If you talk to Jeff, you can get them at our bookstore cheap. There you go. Jeff? You owe me now, man. That's a plug, right? In prime time, that's a plug, right? Go to the bookstore and get those books. Chapter 3 of John actually starts back in chapter 2, verse 23. And it connects the cleansing of the temple with Nicodemus. That's why I wanted to show you that that uh, video and don't forget what the john the apostle told us in those three cho- three short verses back in chapter two though they believed in jesus jesus did not believe in them he had no faith in their faith because it says many people believed in him but then it says jesus didn't believe in them and that should strike you that should strike you so when I asked us at the beginning, what does it mean to be saved or born again or converted? At its basic core, what I'm asking you is, what does it mean to be a Christian? And to sum it up in a sentence, John MacArthur puts it like this, Jesus regarded all belief in Him as superficial, which does not have as its most essential elements the consciousness of the need for forgiveness, And the conviction that he, Jesus alone, is the mediator of that forgiveness. So in other words, you cannot claim to be born again or converted or saved if you don't consciously understand, I need forgiveness of my sin. And the only one who can do that is Jesus exclusively. (laughs) Now, some of you are shaking your head, but I really hope you understand just how profound a statement that is. Because Christianity is very exclusive. But as Keller said when I said it last week, right? It's the only faith that is incredibly inclusive in its exclusiveness. Every one of us, every one of us needs to understand and accept and acknowledge that we need forgiveness. And we can come up with all kinds of reasons why that just happened. But I think one of them is to get you to stop thinking about this. Everything will tempt you to busy your mind and heart not to deal with this. And I will tell you a little bit about if I have time today, if not this week, next week, about my own testimony of this. We need forgiveness. We need to repent and confess not only our sins, but our sinfulness. The biggest struggle for me at 21 when I accepted Jesus Christ was not to say and admit I had done bad things. That was easy because it was obvious. What was profoundly hard for me to admit is that I'm a bad guy. That I do bad things because at my core, I'm a bad guy. Because in my humanity, I want to admit I do bad things, but I also want to say, but I'm not a bad guy. I just screw up sometimes. And that's the delusion of our human heart. We have to admit not only I need forgiveness, but I need forgiveness from my sin and my sinfulness. That Jesus is more than just a good guy or even a great guy. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is the only one who can save us and make us right with God. And it's way more than me and God are good, as John Corbett would say. Or that I've made a deal. Or that I prayed a prayer. Or I nodded my head or I put up my hand. No, It's something much greater and more eternal than that. And so I want us to look at this passage and I want to ask you and beg of you this morning, no matter what my time allows me, to ask God to let you hear it, maybe as if you're hearing it for the first time, to shove away your preconceived ideas, your your already assumed understanding of what the passage means and say, speak, Lord, to me. Push aside these things. Let all of us come to this passage and say, Lord, I know that these words are true and confirm them even more to me. And whatever I've either misunderstood or wrongly applied, please teach me. So take your Bible and let me read John chapter 3, verses 1 to 21 this morning. And these are the words of God. Let me start back in verse 23 of chapter 2. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. When they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about him, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, notice this. Now there was a man. I want you to see that. He himself knows what was in man. Now there was a man. So John the apostle saying, here's exhibit A. Jesus knows what's in all people. Let me start with Nicodemus, the cream of the crop of Judaism. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. If you write in your Bible, underly on that, and maybe put a big question mark. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Notice Nicodemus' response. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, Nicodemus, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Notice the difference. First it was see it, now it's enter it. Verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Nicodemus, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. I can envision Jesus. Look around you. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? How How is this possible? I love Jesus' response. Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? You're you're the scholar. Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 11, we speak what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one, has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And he gives him another Old Testament thing here. He says, and as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son That whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Now, He unpacks this. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. That explains the verse 17. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And here it is, verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light. And here's why. Because their works were evil. Verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light. And here's why. Lest his works should be exposed. But here's the alternative. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. And all I'm going to have time for this morning is simply to set up who Nicodemus is. So my one and only point, that sounds good, doesn't it? Nicodemus, ready for this? The man, his pedigree, his position, and his approach. Okay? You see that in the first few verses. Again, I read verses 23 to 25 because it belongs to the thought. We, we have this use, there was a man, right, in verse 1. And y- you, you can think this is a small thing, but it really has a lot to do with this. John is going to give us a closer look at what's inside of a man and how Jesus knows that man. And he chooses to use the best man he could. He doesn't use, he doesn't start with the Samaritan woman who's had five husbands and shacked up with a sixth guy. No, he starts with the best man you could have an option for in all of Israel. He says, I know what's in men and here's why I won't give myself to them because let me tell you about this guy. And you can see it when we meet this Pharisee. Next in chapter 4, we're going to meet the Samaritan woman. We're going to meet in chapter 4, a a Gentile official. And then we're going to go to the pool of Bethesda. In chapter 6, you're going to see a mob of people that after Jesus feeds the 5,000. And every one of these people, including Nicodemus, leaves Jesus unchanged. But first, exhibit A, my... Your Honor, may I call Nicodemus to the stand. He's a man of the Pharisees, according to our passage. The most known acknowledged group in all of Israel. According to verse 1, he is also a ruler of the Gentiles, or sorry, ruler of the Jews, which means that he's part of a group called the Sanhedrin. In first century Israel, that was a group of 71 men who literally ruled every Jew on the planet. They were in charge of them, what they said. And if you look down at verse 10, Jesus says that Nicodemus was a teacher of Israel. Now what that means was he was an upper class Jew. He was a man of authority and influence. He was a specialist in theology. And you'll notice he secretly, quietly, is still, for all of his pedigree and all of his position, he's still confused. Maybe even scared. And he's searching. Here's a well-educated, well-adjusted, well-to-do man, and yet just like us in the deep crevices of his heart, he's not sure. He's like, what if? What if? And you know what? Please understand that we're conditioned to think poorly of the Pharisees see, when I, you and I have heard so much about how Jesus kind of fought with the Pharisees, when I use that term Pharisee, we don't usually get the warm and fuzzies. But in, in, in John's audience, when he's writing, when he uses this Pharisee, this was an experience, a Pharisee was well respected. In fact, if I wanted to run this all together, he was religiously respected, he was a respected ruler, and he was a respected scholar. And the ir- irony of it for me as I was preparing this, it's hard for me to even illustrate this type of person in our culture. I didn't even know where to go to come up with a, reli- a respected religious, respected authoritarian, uh, authority, and a respected scholar all in one that you would go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Because we don't have any. <laughs> it is tragically funny, isn't it? We don't have one. But for all of his power, for all of his intellect, for all of his teaching, for all of his academic uh, credentials, for all of his pedigree, for all of his position, he's still searching, confused, afraid, and even sincere. But you see from the passage, he's sincerely wrong. Kent Hughes, that commentator, puts it so eloquently. On that quiet Palestinian evening, a perplexed man, moved along the back streets of old Jerusalem to talk to a young rabbi. It was the greatest meeting of his life, a supreme experience. He was about to be face-to-face with Jesus. So this serious aristocrat, sincere follower of the Jewish law, respected and renowned, a teacher of teachers most likely, comes to Jesus by night. Now, whether he did that for fear at work, for fear of the other 70 of the 71 Sanhedrin, whether he did it because of time of day or simply the desire to be unnoticed, maybe he did it because for Jesus he wanted him to be undistracted. Because if it was light, he was likely busy. Either way, Nicodemus puts his searching to action. He didn't simply entertain ideas but rather sought out the one who at least he thought might have the answers and stopped this morning, and this is where I'm going to stop. Are you doing that today? Are you searching out the one who has the answers? Because every one of you in this room has questions. If you look at me and say you don't, I love you, but I'd say liar, liar, pants on fire. We've all got questions, we've all got doubts. Every one of us in here, maybe even today, if not yesterday or the day before, you've entertained feelings about your life, or about God, or the Bible, or church. Every one of us in here have wondered about how you're living, or maybe you're wondering, why is this happening to me? We've all got these questions, but how often do we bury them under the mundane? How often do we push those questions aside and just start living life? Or may I say, because I say this a lot in counseling, I've met far too many people, including myself, that have all these questions and all these doubts and all this curiosity, but we'd rather the hell we know than the hell we don't know. I'd rather cling to some search for pleasure or comfort than maybe find out that although I'm curious, Jesus might call me to something I wasn't signing up for. But what's the definition of insanity again? Oh, yeah, that's right. When we try to do the same thing over and over again, but we try to expect a different result. Nicodemus was an expert in getting up and going through the same routine. But at least he said, Tonight, I got to go talk to Jesus. No matter what he says. So regardless of your position this morning, or your pedigree, or your gender... Let me tell you as lovingly as I can, only coming to God and responding to his call on you will you actually lead to something happening in your life. I want you to take note of these words as we clue this up. Nicodemus comes and says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus actually even asked the wrong question. But he still got truthful answers. I want to challenge every one of you this morning as we think about the fact that this chapter, probably more than any chapter, is going to challenge your belief system. Your habit of doing things, how you view church, how you've done it, how you defined your terminology, I'm going to really mess with your minds. There I float this out because I think I can run faster mad than, or faster scared than you mad. What if I told you that Jesus actually never said John 3:16? That that's actually the words of John the Apostle, that Jesus stops talking at verse 15, and verses sixteen to twenty one are John the Apostle explaining what Jesus has said up to verse 15. How much is your world rock now? Does it change anything? Does it mean John 3.16 has less value? I mean, ultimately, doesn't God say it all? But this is the stuff I want to... I what if I told you that when we really start to unpack John 3.16, it might not be as warm and fuzzy as some of you think it is, especially if you line it up with verse 17, 18, and 19. What if I told you that once you really get all of the chapter? You will see the good news of the gospel in ways you've never seen it before. But next week, I'm going to tell you over and over again, for the good news to be good, the bad news has got to be bad. But Nicodemus, at least we can say this about Nicodemus, which is what I so badly want to know from you this morning. Because every one of you here has questions. Every one of you has doubts. Every one of you has struggles. Every one of you are trying to make sense of something you've been told or the church you were brought in on or or, or church you were brought up on or something you've read in the Bible. Every one of you does, but will you just sit there and stew? And the testimony of my life is for 21 years of my life through countless sermons and countless Sunday school classes and countless Christian school courses in the Bible and countless uh, times of that youth group where we had Bible studies in countless small groups I was convicted I felt that that turning in my stomach that said something's off Steve you got to seek this out and then something would take over and say but not tonight not today just shove it down because you know food's coming or my friends if I really deal with this this might cost me someone might say something maybe I'm gonna find out something I'm not prepared for and for 21 years I would hear truth and shove it aside. And then, in God in his great mercy, Steve had his Nicodemus moment. Because I went to God and I said, this makes no sense. For all of my religion, I'm angry and upset and frustrated all the time. and I can't do this anymore. Either you're God or you're not. Either I discover you tonight or quite literally, as the Westerns say, I said to God, I'll see you in hell. And God in his mercy would not let me get up off my bed that night because he showed me himself. And my life has never been the same. I was born again. And it wasn't a prayer. It wasn't a cliche. I don't have a fancy testimony. I lay on a waterbed and wrestled with God. And God wouldn't let me roll off of it until I was His. And from that day to this one, I will tell you, just like the third verse of Amazing Grace, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. His grace has brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home. But my plea with you this morning, in maybe a very disjointed sermon, is this. Don't shove it down and leave here with unanswered questions or unresolved prayer struggles or misunderstanding terminology or betting on the fact, well, you know what, I'll come back next week and I'll hear Steve again. What if today is the day you've got to go have your chat with Jesus? We're going to close by singing a song called Hear Our Praises. But before you can have praise, you've got to know that your answers to your questions have been dealt with. If you're here this morning and you have those questions, please don't leave. If you need someone to pray, come up here afterwards and talk to me. I want to pray with you. Seek somebody out. Make make a determination that you're going to get answers to your questions. You'll not regret it no matter how impactful and in your face the response will be from God, you will not regret it. I'm not just a preacher. I'm also a client. I have lived this. And God is calling to you. I know that. I've never met the sinner who went to God who God didn't want. Let's close in prayer. Father God, I thank you for the opportunity to be humbled. Lord, in my pride, in my humanity, as a pastor and a preacher who's driven to handle your word well, this passage overwhelms me. Lord, I do pray that everyone here will leave or stay or however their day or week unfolds and they will wrestle with their questions. That they'll realize that being born into a Christian family or raised in a church or having made a decision or having learned certain terminology, Lord, help them to overcome and see past all these things and ask themselves, do I truly know Jesus? Have I been born again? Lord, I pray for the children here who've been around this stuff literally since birth. Help them to understand that they need saving from their righteousness as much as We need saving from our sinfulness. Lord, I pray that this passage will weigh on everybody's hearts. Lord, not in some morbid way. I don't want people to think that, Lord, but to realize that as we really are confronted with reality, it is when we can find the joy and hope of your reality. Oh, fill us with a sense of urgency. Lord, may we recapture this term born again. May it mean something. May the city look at us and say, I'll tell you what, I don't know if I like them, I don't know if I agree with them, I think many of them are crazy, but I'll tell you one thing, they're different because they know Jesus. Lord, may indeed this city and this church hear our praises because Jesus has made a difference in our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.